Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Police Story, the myth of the municipal force. begin with the theme song from the wildly popular 1953 television program, Dragnet. I'm sure most of you recognized it. I've chosen to begin with it because what we'll hear today about policing in America, and as an import-export business, reveals the still-prevalent attitudes born of the Cold War, and that challenges any distinction we might make between military intervention and police assistance. The bulk of what we'll look at today centers on the era of the Vietnam War. Let's turn to the police crime dramas from the 1970s. And we'll start with the theme from the television show Mannix, composed by Lalo Schifrin, an Argentine-born American pianist and composer probably best known for the theme from Mission Impossible and for his collaborations with Clint Eastwood, particularly the Dirty Harry films. Mannix aired from 1967 to 1975 on CBS and ran for eight seasons. The character Joe Mannix works for a large Los Angeles detective agency called Intertech. He also has a working relationship with the Los Angeles Police Department, often exchanging information with his contacts. Mannix is a regular guy, but one fighting demons from his time with the U.S. Army during the Korean War. During the series, Mannix is also revealed to have worked as a mercenary in Latin America. A key theme of our program today is border crossing. The way that the so-called municipal, public, police departments have always been much more than local institutions dedicated to the public safety of a town or city in a U.S. state. The theme songs today come from programs that illustrate the plastic role of policing, or what today's guest, Nicole Siegel, calls violence work. Siegel is a professor in the American Studies and History Departments at Indiana University in Bloomington, whose new book is Violence Work, State Power and the Limits of Police, published by Duke University Press. She joins us today live in our WFHB studio. In her book, Siegel shows how the police put violence to work for the state, policing being the quintessential translation of state power. She highlights a number of fallacies or myths about policing, that it is civilian and distinguishable from the military, that it is a public service rather than a private endeavor, that it is locally based and municipally controlled. Policing is, in fact, the human-scale expression of the state. A key issue in all of this is the way the police serve to clear the way for the operations of the so-called free market, making it evident that what we call private and what we call public are useful fictions for the operations of empire and capital. And now, Police Story with Nicole Siegel on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange, Mikko Siegel. Thank you so much, Doug. 
Always a pleasure to be on your award-winning show. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> now, uh, first, how can I ever watch Andy Griffith again after reading your book? <laughs> I'm so sorry to have oh, ruined that for you. Talk about ruining the smiling, happy police person for me. <laughs> Andy Griffith. Um, before we get into uh, a very revealing history of the Office of Public Safety, which you trace in your book, let's talk about those three myths that uh, we open the top of the show with. Mm-hmm. First myth, let's let's look at the police are local and beholden to their municipality. How's that a myth? Well, um, myth is one way of thinking about these borders. Uh, a political story might be another. Myth in the sense that Roland Barthes meant of... Um, ideological explanations for things. Mm-hmm. Um, so not something that is uh, necessarily false and able to be disproven, but something that does a lot of work for us, mm, for okay. how we think about the world. Um, so the idea that police are local, that they're small scale, I think is, is one, of the, um, it's one of the most important and one of the least fraught myths about police are one of the least fraught borders of the idea of police because nobody gets much up in arms over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be because when police travel or work at scales larger than municipal or state scales, they um, they aren't very visible, but they don't arouse a lot of ire the way militarized police or privatized armies do. Um, so it's uh, but it is something that happens. Very often, police are often finding themselves traveling abroad, uh, and there are many, there are over 80 federal agencies that have their own police forces, and there are also other kinds of violence workers who operate at different scales, who I think are comparable to police. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what the myth does, I think, is it, it reinforces the idea of the benign police officer. You know, he's just a small scale local guy uh, or gal these days, somebody from your neighborhood, um, along with the kind of image that is imparted by the concept of community policing. Mm -hmm. The idea that that police are local uh, is, is something that kind of brings them down to a comfortable and relatable size and helps to obscure their relationship to the state, which... Mm -hmm. You know, in in this book, I'm arguing that that's the main thing we should understand about police is their relationship to the state. Well, they are local. I mean, that is one of the things that that gets in our face, right? We see them. We know that they're here. They're called Bloomington Police, and they they are for us, right? We do. We see a lot of local police. We don't see as much the police who are operating at other scales or who are traveling or border crossing. You know, I noticed actually, you know, when the whole um, Dakota Access Pipeline thing happened, a lot of states sent police forces, sent their own uh, particular counties, sent police to yeah. the, the pipeline. So they don't go internationally there, but, you know, crossing the state borders to do work for another state, actually another a corporation. That's right. And and they're also, um, they are crossing national borders in a way when they're going into Native American territories. Mm-hmm, so there mm-hmm. are issues of sovereignty there that mm-hmm. make nationalisms complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But it, and also, I mean, just when you're walking around Bloomington um, on weekends when there are more things going on or if something uh, you know, an emergency is going on, you'll see police cars from all over Indiana. Hmm. So the idea that local police only work locally is uh, is really not true. You know, true. municipalities coordinate and oh, Bloomington right. borrows Ellettsville, Bedford. I mean, you right. see even campus police from other campuses. You can see their cars mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. occasion. Yeah, I see so, Ellettsville police at the Kroger. All that they do. That's they right. Do, they <laughs> highlight, they, what's it called? Um, moonlight. moonlight. Thank you. Highlight. They, moon, <laughs> they moonlight yes. at the Kroger. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest today is 
Nicole Siegel, professor in the American Studies and History Departments of Indiana University, author of Violence Work, State Power and the Limits of Policing. Now, we've got to get through these other myths, so let's okay. skip to a second myth. The police are a civilian force charged to protect citizens. Yeah. Not military. That's right. right. And and I think you already reveal the work that this myth does when you say a civilian force right, charged right, with right. protecting civilians, citizens, because it is the idea that police are um, protecting rather than attacking, mm-hmm. right? Not wielding violence against citizens, but wielding violence as a last resort whenever absolutely necessary in order to protect citizens. Right. And the, the reason that I think this is a really important myth to think about is that the accusation of police militarization is very live, very controversial debate today. And it's something that lots of progressives and people who are hoping for police reform are up in arms about. Mm-hmm. And if you instead recognize that over the history of the U.S. state and other um, you know, modern North Atlantic states, the police and the military have been in a constant relationship of exchange, that they've gone back and forth to help each other mm-hmm. in their um, sites of work, uh, and that they have sent strategies and materials back and forth to each other over the centuries, um, then you you kind of have a different sense of what the police really are. They are not some pure civilian entity that is violated a little bit by elements of military material that come into them. They are already, from the very beginning, they are mixed with little slivers and uh, segments of military weapons, strategies, tactics, and history. They're not separable. Mm -hmm. So we can't demilitarize the police because they are already military in a way that's not possible to separate um, from from their essence. Yeah, I think you argue that the even having the uh, or saying this demilitarized uh, assumes there's a, a good police in a sense. You know, assume exactly. that, that there's, as you said before, a benign force there. If only we would rein them in, or only exactly. we, we could reform them. And we have some some idea of sort of a, an Eden in the past in which police were purely civilian, and we want to return to right. That. Where would that be? You know, we talk about uh, historically the Pinkertons in particular. Right. Like there's a nasty group of people, right? Who, <laughs> Yes. Who beat? I mean, who, whose job is as much as detecting things, basically to beat people up for both state and corporate interests. Right, and yeah. even if you look at the public police, the history of the public police, um, you know, who've been involved in repressing dissent in the era of the Red Scale, Red Scare, who were involved in um, allowing, even promoting, even participating in lynching, mm-hmm. um, who were deeply involved in maintaining the orders of. Uh, the U.S. when we were a plantation mm-hmm. slavery economy. Um, and in every chapter of U.S. history, the police have been uh, incredibly brutal to the working poor and black and brown yeah. U.S. citizens and immigrants. Yeah, it's an easy conversation to have as if we don't know this right. or we don't experience it if you're white and privileged on some level or have some wealth at all or just right. live in a, a, a college town and work for a college. Uh, you don't You don't recognize the realities of policing. Obviously, more and more today, we see it. Uh, more and more via social yeah. media, we're able to see the the situation. Um, it's a it's it's shocking, but as you say, it's it's part of it's it's baked into the cake, so to speak. It is, right? it is, and and just to highlight, um, you know, maybe one important moment of exchange. 
I mean, there are there are many. Basically, in every war, U.S. police have gone abroad and participated in military activities. Mm. But in 1898, in the uh, the Spanish American War, which involved the U.S. Uh, displacement of Spanish colonial powers in um, the Philippines, uh, American Samoa, Cuba, Puerto Rico, uh, and um, U.S. police were present. And hmm. they were especially involved in the occupied Philippines after the U.S. victory there. Mm -hmm. And then they returned to bring the tactics that they learned there, that they had brought there and developed, amplified, evolved. Mm -hmm. They brought them home to police, hyper-policed communities in the U.S. Right. So, And that has happened over and over and over throughout U.S. history. So there really is – there's there's no clean, demilitarized police right available to us. It is a complete myth, and it does intense ideological work on behalf of state violence. Mm. Now, the third one, the police are a public entity and don't work for private interests. We've touched on this throughout already, obviously, with groups like the Pinkertons, but let's expand on that a bit more. Yeah. So also over the course of U.S. and, and British history, because British history is um, the template for U.S. police history. It was the British police force organized by Sir Robert Peel in the 1830s that is the explicit model for the U.S. police. Um, so in both Britain and the U.S., uh, police are um, – police history is kind of shuttling back and forth from public to private entities, from the private corporations that colonized India and from the militarized police that policed colonial occupied Ireland uh, – to in the U.S., as you're saying, right, the Pinkertons and Burns and Wackenhut, the big three detective agencies mm -hmm. that were, um, you know, not Wackenhut, but Burns and Pinkerton were the only national police forces prior to the creation of the FBI. Mm. Uh, and when the FBI was created, it evolved from rather than independently of right. those private entities. People moved over and took those roles in the FBI as well. Yeah, so you see a kind of flip-flop from public to private policing mm. over the course of both of these countries, of these empires. And you also see in any moment, you see police doing the work of the market and you see private security, the private security industry doing the work of the state. So keeping order um, and um, preserving the kind of order that police, that public police are supposed to be in charge of. Mm -hmm. And they're preserving order for a capitalist interest more than anything else. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that has been, that has been shown ad nauseum by <laughs> Marxist scholars of police, but right. somehow it doesn't get in there and dislodge our assumptions that when we say police, we immediately think of a public employee. And right. that's just not right. It's not the right way to think about what police do mm -hmm. and who they are. Right. Uh, so uh, I'm going to take a break before we go to violence work, all right? So Excellent. we'll take a break so we have a little more time to, to talk through violence work when we come back. Now, for this break, we're going to hear the theme song to Hawaii Five-0, a police procedural drama series that aired on CBS beginning in 1968 and ran for 12 seasons. Jack Lord portrayed Detective Lieutenant Steve McGarrett, the head of a special state police task force, which was based on an actual unit that existed in Hawaii under the period of martial law from 1941 to 1944. Hawaii was, in effect, a police state run by a military governor through general orders regulating civilian life. Morton Stevens composed the song and also worked on the shows Gunsmoke and Policewoman. Stay with us for more on the border crossing violence of the police when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In the studio with me tonight is Nicole Siegel, author of Violence Work, State Power and the Limits of Police. In our first segment, we talked about some of the deeply entrenched misconceptions about the nature of the police force, specifically what it is they serve, the state, the market, as opposed to Jane and Joe Public. Now, we're going to turn uh, in this segment, we're going to move forward and talk about a government agency that Nicole tracks in her book, Violence Work. But before we do that, we're going to um, actually ask why violence work? Why why use this term? Yeah. So this is a term that uh, I'm trying to lean on in order to get people to do the kind of rethinking of the idea of police that um, I'm trying to do here to get them to accompany me. So violence work is something that um, I think shows us that the police uh, kind of don't fit the container that we put them in and yet also sort of overflow it. So what do I mean by that? Um, police are... Uh, authorized to inflict violence, mm. right? Their ultimate power comes from their potential to wield violence. And this is something that police scholars since the 70s have understood, that police are not necessarily violent every day or all the time. And in fact, most police, actual officers, um, public police officers, very, very rarely are involved in firing their guns or beating somebody up like between you know, once in a career to never is the norm for many, many police officers. Mm -hmm. However, their power, their ability to say, um, hey, use the crosswalk or, you know, keep moving along, nothing to see here, mm -hmm. comes from their ability to inflict violence, you know, to bring out the handcuffs or to shoot somebody if the situation seems to require it from their perspective. And so it's the suspended violence mm. that constitutes the power of the police. Yeah, it's one of the things we, we talked to the chief, uh, Bloomington chief, Mike Dekoff here on Interchange about that that relationship, which isn't a, re well, it's a relationship, but not one I can, I can manage very well. I get very nervous about it, right? Even when you start uh -huh. to think about it, you want to think I'm an upstanding citizen, but you, you across from the table have a gun. You across from the table can say any number of things might be something I did to you. You know, you just have a power over me in every situation. And I don't understand that. Like, I don't understand that being a proper thing to have happen, right? Yeah. Like, that's a, that's the case we live with, <laughs> right? All around us in this, in this city are men and women who have power over us, extreme power, right? Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, their, their power is, is a structural thing. It doesn't mm -hmm. come from just the existence of the gun in their holster. It comes right, from right. the state behind them, with, which authorizes them to use that gun. So, um, so what I mean by violence work is not that people are actually inflicting violence all the time. Mm. It's something broader. And when you think about people whose work is enabled by the authority to inflict violence, mm -hmm. then uh, you're actually thinking of a much larger category than just the police. That includes people who work for all the branches of state discipline, including prison guards, including all soldiers, um, and uh, including private security mm -hmm. officials and others who are entitled to... to um, either carry a gun or make arrests. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in, in some cases, you can expand that power um, kind of to absurdity. But the point that I'm trying to make here are those um, those entities who are enabled by the state whose violence would be considered legitimate because of their relationship to yeah, the state. Yeah, legitimate violence. Yeah. That's, that's and, important. And then, so mm -hmm. then on the other side, though, the police also do 
obviously, many, many things that don't have to be violence work. You don't need a gun in order to um, deal with a pothole or a noise complaint or uh, help a lost child or direct traffic, you know. And so there, in talking about the police as violence workers, I am highlighting how much work they do that they don't need to do and how much work that is given to police forces in U.S. cities and towns right now that could be given to other entities. Mm-hmm. It could just be given away. We could have an unarmed and nonviolent traffic directing mm-hmm. sector. We could have more social workers. We could have people who are, you know, walking the the bead trail and who are not carrying guns and who are not connected Mm. more to the jail than to the hospital and to the social service agencies. Mm. And that is the basis of a very practical kind of police abolitionism of not of firing every police officer today, but of looking just with a purely commonsensical eye at the work that police are given and saying, "Mm, we could give this piece to somebody else and this piece to somebody else and we could shrink the amount that we spend on mm-hmm. our police force immediately and drastically. And that would be mm-hmm. extremely useful to us <laughs> in terms of the diversion of funds. To well, we're doing services. the other, we're doing the opposite, right? We're, we're cutting, totally we're cutting all the, all the programs. Yep. Uh, and, and as the chief also said, they're the first, first way, the first line of service. You that's know, right. That, that's, they're, they're our first responders, which is mm-hmm. a terrible euphemism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and they're also um, just uh, being given more and more expensive and lethal weaponry, which I suggest we discuss not as militarization, mm-hmm. but as increasing lethality, mm. increasing the lethality of the police. They are more and more lethal with these ridiculous guns and tanks and um, armored vehicles, and um, it's it's completely unnecessary. And yeah. So the other thing about violence work, just to give a sure, shout yeah. out to mm-hmm. scholars of um, sex work, you know, that uh, folks who have thought and not not only scholars, but activists, primarily activists, activists who have fought for decades to have what we used to call prostitution mm-hmm. understood in its proper context as labor. And so once you start seeing sex work as sex work, you have a completely different sense of how you ought to, um, uh, you know, enable the workers and protect them and what kinds of violences that the um, that we should try to make them uh, less vulnerable to and how mm-hmm. medical care should mm-hmm. work and um, and so on. Mm-hmm. And the, the moral judgment that goes along with understanding it as prostitution yeah. is lifted. Well, you and I talked about this a little bit uh, before the show, too. The That's idea right. that, um, you know, um, I, I, I offered that soldier didn't have the same kind of moral, ish, you know, weight. And you said, yes, it does. Of course it does. It just has a more positive moral force to it. Absolutely. And that the actual, you know, tying sex and work and, and violence and work together uh, creates kind of an interesting seesaw for both terms, right? That's so right. Uh, violence work becomes more negative. Sex work becomes more positive, right, which is right. pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely trying to use violence work as a polemic mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to to invite people into the critique of police. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest today is Nicole Siegel, professor in the American Studies and History Departments of Indiana University, author of Violence Work, State Power and the Limits of police uh, earlier, I said policing. I get the two. Are the, are the two interchangeable? Police and policing, or well, the the reason I use police mm-hmm. here is um, I was actually referring to the juridical principle mm-hmm. of the police power, and um, sometimes I think I mostly dropped that from the book. But it is um, a sort of a conceit that you take on if you read a lot of this stuff that people talk about um, the police as 
as a kind of singular entity, not a mm-hmm. plural bunch of people. Yeah, you say I'm a police. No, also, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Crazy stuff. Uh, but the um, the interesting thing about that title too is you say the limits of police, but generally your book shows there are none. There are no limits, it seems like. So, you know, what are the limits of well, police? Well, I was talking about, you know, the limits that we project onto the oh, police, okay, the, okay. the limit of their civilian nature, right. of their public Representation employee, is limited. and of their mm-hmm. local scale. Yeah, so okay, the, the myths of those limits. <laughs> the myths do show limits. You know, it's one of the things that, that is, it is interesting here, we, again, in Bloomington, because we have the white shirts that yeah. we talk about being community <laughs> service oriented policing, right? Again, carrying weapons, dealing with generally what we term our what uh, I don't know how to say this, and like I, I don't think I need to say it in a nice way because most people consider this uh, our, our our problematic community, right? Uh, the the uh, people who drink too much, the people who are on drugs, the people who are who don't have homes. You know, all these yeah. things are sort of grouped. But in this mostly, one group. mostly the overlap of those things because people mm. who drink too much and do drugs, sure. but who have homes, are not considered this, the same kind of problem. True, that's true. <laughs> they have homes and a good bit that, of money. Uh, yeah, homes to go yeah. to and hide from the police. Right. Well, that's the, that's always been an interesting aspect of understanding these these relationships again because they they create those hierarchies of who we are, right? The relationship to the police. I'm I have a much different relationship to the police than other people do. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes it hard to understand. It it's Di- massively difficult to understand, and it's yeah. it's hard to have political conversations about these things usually too, because you you end up talking to people who, let's say, are pro police, you know, pro authority, and because why do you not do you think that um, um, if you don't do anything, it's this standard argument, right? If you don't do anything wrong, what do you have to fear from the police? They're there to serve and help you and protect you, right? Yeah, I mean, I think. We really need to talk more about the criminalization of poverty Mm -hmm. and of um, the de facto status offenses of being poor, uh, not having a home, living in the public place, and being black and brown. Mm -hmm. Those are... Uh, those are profoundly criminalized, and you but really are, have to do almost nothing in order to be targeted if you inhabit one of those status categories. These seem categories. to me a, like a, a integral to police, right? These, yes. these categories, they all work together and make police – that's what police do. That's what police do, and the more police you have, the more they will do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean – to understand police in relation to the market is also to understand mm. them in relation to race um, because, you know, capitalism works by generating certain surpluses, which in the modern era, right, the last 500 years, we have sopped up with the category race, which allows mm-hmm. states to decide how people should be segmented occupationally and whom to let live and whom to make die. Mm-hmm. and. The way that race works right now, um, particularly through the system of mass criminalization, that just is eating up so many of our fellow citizens. Um, the way that race works right now is profoundly that about shortening people's lives, making people vulnerable to premature death. Mm-hmm. And so police are the arm of the state that is designated to enforce the sopping up of that surplus by mm-hmm. going around and making arrests or uh, by enforcing spatial segregation, right? Because po- people who are quote unquote out of place mm-hmm. are particularly vulnerable to um, to being policed, to being stopped and frisked and arrested for things that people who 
are not perceived as out of place right. can do all the time and never encounter a problem. Right. Hey, it's time for another break. This is the theme song to The Streets of San Francisco, composed by Patrick Williams and performed here by Henry Mancini. The Streets of San Francisco starred Carl Malden and Michael Douglas. Both actors spent time with the SFPD detectives in order to lend an air of authenticity to the drama, and the show made a unique effort to insinuate itself as seamlessly as possible into the fabric of the city. The series was filmed almost entirely on location in San Francisco. More on violence work with Nicole Siegel when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Support for WFHB also comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. You're listening to Interchange right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Police Story, the Myth of the Municipal Force. And our guest is Miko Siegel, professor of American Studies and History at Indiana University. We're finding out today where the police force at home and abroad can and does flex its institutional muscles and how we misconstrue their ambit. Uh, let's turn now, Miko, to the uh, a specific government agency you studied that will work like a lens through which we can see some of these misconceptions. This is the Office of Public Safety. What is it? When did it begin its work? Mm. The Office of Public Safety um, was a Kennedy-era innovation 
started in 1962, ended in 1974. Mm -hmm. So it operated for a very short period of time. Um, but it replaced other organizations doing similar work and other people doing similar work outlasted it. So it allows us to see a kind of institutional crystallization of this work. And the work was training foreign police officers. So Office of Public Safety employees went abroad. They went, um, to countries in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Uh, and they taught other nations' police how to be more professional or modern. Uh, and they were dogged throughout their existence by accusations of corruption, of teaching torture, of political policing. And they were finally terminated by Congress in 1974 um, when Congress amended the Foreign Assistance Act to prohibit U.S. training of foreign police. Hmm. Um, so, however, um, they made some very large exceptions for training having to do with narcotics. And then over the course of the rest of the 70s and then deeply into the 80s, they made exception after exception to the point that the U.S. now regularly sends police abroad to do this very same kind of work that hmm. was very publicly um, and scandalously terminated in 1974. Hmm. So the, this is actually a group that sent police from U.S. cities, yeah, uh, here and there. So a Houston police detective or a Houston, you know, uh, would would be used in this particular group. That's right. A lot of their. That's right. A lot of their employees were police officers, were municipal public police officers, but they also employed people from every branch of violence work, hmm. from prisons, from private security. Uh, they from. Federal agencies, there were lots of CIA employees who were also working with OPS. OPS and the CIA had an intimate relationship um, in some ways. Some Not people, always a friendly one. Well, in the end, an unfriendly mm -hmm. one because uh, people from OPS thought that the CIA sort of threw them under the bus and sacrificed OPS in order to save CIA mm -hmm. from accusations that were coming at it from um, – uh, Operation Phoenix hmm. in Vietnam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, uh, t tell us a little bit about your research, actually, which I, I thought was pretty fascinating. Uh, you know, where you did a lot of this. We found out a lot about this group from their own newsletter. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was interested in the Office of Public Safety um, thanks to the suggestion of a colleague, um, James Woodard, uh, who suggested that I look at these people because I was interested in finding U.S. police who had worked abroad, mm -hmm. um, and I, I was interested. I was interested more generally generally, actually, in the U.S. prison systems work abroad. So I only came to policing secondarily after I identified this group and decided to write about them. Their records are available at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. So mm. I was there. I spent some time there. And um, I would go back and forth from the Biographic Register, which is a State Department compendium of all the biographic details of its employees, right up to... Um, it ends in 1974 because they realized that... Uh, it was a way for people, foreigners, to identify CIA oh. employees mm. because people would have their names published in these paper-bound volumes year after year, and then they would disappear. <laughs> and when they disappeared, people knew that they were CIA. So they stopped publishing this mm. biographic register. So from that to the records of the Office of Public Safety to um, – Things like Who's Who and LexisNexis looking for newspaper articles about these guys um, to try to see what they did when the Office of Public Safety ended. And so at one point, I actually found a Facebook page for <laughs> one of these ex-Office of Public Safety employees, a guy named Morris Grodsky, who's a very interesting person. And so I contacted him on Facebook, and he responded oh, to boy. me. 
Wow. And I eventually interviewed him a few times. He's a, really a lovely guy in his 80s now, hmm. um, uh, a little bit infirm these days. Um, but uh, he connected me to others who are also former OPS employees, including the person who was at that point editing the newsletter. Okay. And so then I found out about the newsletter. The mm -hmm. newsletter is this thing that they began to publish in 1974, wow. the very moment that they were terminated because they were furious at mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. terminated and they felt wronged, deeply wronged. And so um, they had a kind of sense of themselves as a, an aggrieved community and they organized together and they mm -hmm. helped each other out. They helped each other find new jobs. One of the ways they kept in touch was through this newsletter, which was very informal and has remained informal over the now more than 40 years that it's been published. Um, and now it mostly publishes uh, obituaries mm. uh, and photographs and memorabilia. Mm. Uh, but so I began to correspond with the editor of the newsletter. And eventually they published a query from me mm -hmm. asking for a complete asking for more copies of the newsletter. And I got a complete run. Um, yeah, a um, uh, if one former OPS officer had just been keeping them in his attic. Mm -hmm. So now the IU library is okay. housing them and they will be available wow. as research materials um, for posterity. Unbelievable. Now, how, about how many OPS officers were there? Do you, do you have an idea over time? There were only about 1,500 total. Okay. It was really mm -hmm. a very small agency. Mm. It's, I'm not making an argument about the um, causal importance of OPS mm. in shaping U.S. policing. I'm using them as an example of, um, uh, of how to understand policing, of what mm -hmm. it means, and of watching them um, move around the various mm -hmm. jurisdictions that violence workers. Yeah, operate so this in. is the um, this is the template for counterinsurgency you talk about throughout the book, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. OPS was critical to the work of counterinsurgency, especially in Vietnam, although counterinsurgency is a tactic that um, didn't originate there. It started a little bit earlier. And I mean, some people think it started much earlier in the U.S.-Indian Wars, but it began to be discussed as counterinsurgency after World War II. Mm. And um, it is this very interesting kind of hybrid practice that's almost like policing in a war zone because it involves a lot of intelligence and um Guerrilla tactics. It's trying to use guerrilla tactics against guerrilla tactics. It's inspired right, by sure. um, by terrorism or guerrilla uh, opposition. And I think one way of understanding that is by remembering the incredibly disproportionate force that the U.S. brought to its imperial engagements. So what can you do when you are, you know, Vietnam, North Vietnam, and you are fighting this global superpower. Mm -hmm. um, and so the U.S. had to develop these these kinds of tactics. And uh, they turn out to be, you know, extremely useful for surveillance of dissidents and activists back home in the mm -hmm. U.S. as well. Basically surveillance of anyone. Right? Basically surveillance <laughs> yeah, right, of anyone. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest today is Miko Siegel, professor in the American Studies and History Departments of Indiana University, author of Violence Work, State Power, and the Limits of Policing. Uh, bringing it home is the, is a key issue as well. And there's, um, there's obviously a lot of social unrest uh, around this time as well, civil rights movements, peace movements, et cetera, uh, riots in the streets, 67 
67, 68. So yeah. here we have people openly talking in the in the um, uh, police uh, conversations, right, about about the U.S. itself being a foreign operation in a sense, right? This, the ur- you know the urban environment becomes a field of operations, and so counterinsurgency comes home. That's right. Yeah, and people have talked about this for you know for a long time. I mean, since it was happening, mm-hmm. as people bringing the war home. Um, but what I, I want folks to remember is that this isn't just something that was created by the army out of whole cloth. It was something that was already a product of police-military collaboration and that is a mixture of police and military strategies. So counterinsurgency is a hybrid practice, whether it is inflicted abroad or at home. Mm-hmm. It isn't just a simple case of the return of, mm-hmm. you know, of empire, of imperial tactics mm-hmm. to U.S. soil. The fascinating thing that you talk about um, when you were talking about this group feeling aggrieved, right? They're, they're yeah. a group of, of workers. Yes. And this is an interesting sort of... Um, uh, parallel with the idea of, of work generally, of being laid off, of being, you know, there was that George Clooney movie up in the air where he has to go fire people. And I, I always yeah. tell the story that I was I was actually let go of a job I had for almost 10 years the next weekend after I saw that movie, which is horrifying. Oh my God. Right? But, but in that movie, you, you see people saying, this is my family and I've been fired, right? It's like, I don't belong. I don't care. And you can, right. you can hear this in these, in these guys' letters, in these newsletters. They feel aggrieved as a group of, of laborers, but family. But, you know, what work yeah. does to us is it makes us feel like we're something, you know. That's I, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you get fired, um, your sense of belonging is disrupted. But mm. if your entire organization is terminated, mm-hmm. then your whole family um, right. moves on yeah. to this status. That's, of, the, that's why the newsletter becomes so important, right? It's like their, their body. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, fascinating. It's yeah. And, and um, it was very interesting to be so involved with a bunch of the folks who were mm-hmm. a part of the newsletter and of the XOPS community. And I, I did a half dozen interviews and I eventually stopped. Um, but it, it helped me understand and develop the argument about this category of violence work, which, as I emphasize, is not about violent people, not about people who are these terrible, evil people. And I, you know, I think a, a lot of folks think they're going to go be police officers because that's a helping profession. And, um, but, what happens is when you are a branch of the state in this way, even if you are a very good person, you're doing a certain kind of work in the world. Your work has a certain ideological and material effect uh, that you might not have intended initially. Sure, sure. You know, um, you mentioned this in the book. I think it's page 171. There's the famous <laughs> photo of um, the general, I don't know his name, is a Vietnam, Vietnam general, mm-hmm. Lone is his last name, I think. Yeah. He's actually the chief of national police uh, for yeah. South Vietnam. And there's this the famous photo of him shooting uh, a Viet Cong person yeah, uh, in the head while he's uh, handcuffed, right? So yeah. he, this is actually a little segment in the book where that particular person, General Lone, turns out comes to the U.S. and is running a pizzeria in Virginia right. yeah. where a lot of these ops guys go and hang out and chat. Yeah, I mean, that's so he, he was a counterpart of these of Office of Public Safety officers mm-hmm. in South Vietnam, and counterpart meant the person that you were training, the person mm-hmm. that you were working with, or whose troops you were helping right. to professionalize or modernize. And so, people went to visit him when it was, you know, when it was revealed that he was who he was, and um, they supported him in the uh, case that the. Um, U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service brought against him when it was revealed that he had been this the perpetrator of this violence. Mm, yeah, that's 
just kind of amazing. It's hard to think about some of these things, right? Um, it's time for our final break. This is the theme song from Magnum P.I., composed by Mike Post and Pete Carpenter. Magnum P.I. Be- began in 1980 and ran for eight seasons, along with Chips. This show began a trend toward portrayals of Vietnam veterans as central characters in television fiction. Before this, vets normally appeared in minor roles, often portrayed as unstable and socially marginal. Here, the veteran emerged as a hero, and in this sense, their war experience, stripped of contentious backdrop, became suitable for television. These characters drew their strength from their war experience, including a band of brothers' camaraderie, which enabled them to act as a team. They also tended to stand apart from dominant social institutions, reflecting the loss of confidence in those institutions produced by Vietnam, by the Vietnam War, without requiring extensive discussions of the politics of war. When we come back, more with Nicole Siegel. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange here on Community Radio WFHB. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Nicole Siegel is our guest in the studio today. She's the author of Violence Work, State Power and the Limits of Police, published by Duke University Press. Um, 
that was enough Magnum PI to last me for a long time, probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Doesn't take much. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, the reason I chose to play these theme shows, songs, were was basically to sort of track the way that we kind of learn to think about police, learn to imagine their roles via television. I don't know any police. I mean, I know a couple now, but right. I don't really, I never knew police. Uh, police are always this other out there that keep that I keep at my arm's length and that they keep right. themselves at arm, arm's and, length. And your race and class positions allow you to do That's so. That's right, they do. I don't see, they're not up front in my face. Right. You're right. So here on television, I learn police, right? And as, as, as warped as it is, Right, I, I learn who they are, but I learn them as heroes. Right, mm-hmm. I learn I learn them as by the book. But if they break the rules, it's for a good cause, and they do it. It's right if they break the rules, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so this is why I chose these particular um, uh, sh- theme show songs, especially when there's a, a guy with a background, you know, from Latin American mercenary work. But <laughs> uh, but Magnum PI in particular, and Chips. I, I noted Chips also. That was started in 1977. The main character. One of the main characters in Chips had had come home from the Vietnam War, mm. and so TV begins to incorporate the Vietnam so- War soldier into these roles mm-hmm. uh, and into these respectable roles. To, I think the character uh, that Tom Selleck plays on Magnum PI is also a security expert. You know, so he, oh, you know, right. so yeah, yeah. So we're drawing these 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 parallels between what you're writing and what's happening in TV at this at the very same time. So there is a group that's respected and that begins to be sort of pushed back into society in a way that. Right. Can, can well, there's be. this big public argument about how Vietnam vets are treated. Yeah. And the, the Office of Public Safety guys, they never get uh, kind of resurrected. You know, they never their, – their public image is never um, repaired. Mm. And they go into history just feeling that they've been completely wronged by being portrayed as torturers, especially right. the accusation of torture What's really rankles What's rough with the general loan picture? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there is yeah, there are some the – pl- there, <laughs> there are plausibly some, yeah. some issues there. I mean, there are plausibly other issues. The thing that got them initially terminated was a controversy over the Kansan Island prison Mm. in Vietnam, which U.S. advisors were helping to organize and run. And they were accused of having these tiny little dank um, cells that were called tiger cages. There was a big congressional investigation and a lot of outrage over that. And then there was the kidnapping of an Indiana police officer, Dan Mitrioni, mm. from Richmond, Indiana, by the Tupamaro guerrillas in Uruguay who um, were furious over the U.S. teaching of torture uh, in Uruguay to government um, opponents of the uh, of the opposition. And so that brought a huge amount of controversy, especially when it was made into a movie called State of Siege. Mm, that's the Costa Garvis movie? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's right, Costa Garvis. Uh, Gavras. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah. All right. Close enough. Yeah. Um, but uh, the um, – so the, OPS, the OPS officers were um, – they were actually – when I talked to them, they were all, I think, very hopeful that I would write the book that would repair their reputation. Mm. And I, I constantly reiterated that I was not going to write that book. <laughs> I was going to write a different kind of book. Right. I was not going to address these, mm-hmm, you know, these mm-hmm. accusations. And I don't. I don't say whether they're true or false. I've – I leave that to lots of other capable mm-hmm. scholars. They've had lots of other people write about that part of them. But I do think that there's something incredibly important for our moment in how the OPS officers felt when they came home. You know, they felt uh, that they had been disrespected by uh, every segment of the American population, especially in the moment when they came home. They felt that the anti-war and um, – 
and, and social justice movements and also the movements of the 60s for sexual liberation um, were um, – were their just absolute nemeses. Mm -hmm. uh, they felt deeply uncomfortable and unlike their fellow citizens when they came home. And a lot of them, I think, developed the kinds of loyalties and bitternesses, loyalties built on bitternesses that have created the kind of right-wing populism mm. that has survived, you know, that was sort of fed in the 80s by Reaganism's small government mm -hmm. Uh, mania, even as he built prisons sure. and punishment structures. Big government, of, yeah, punishment government is yeah. a big government, but yeah. uh, small in the sense that they don't help anybody out. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> and, you know, and that has kind of gone underground and resurfaced, and I think we're just living it intensely mm -hmm. in this moment. One interesting thing you point out, which was uh, really fascinating, is the intimacies created in these relationships overseas, right? So in Vietnam yeah. in particular, a lot of these guys would, would pos I mean, have marriages, even... Uh, uh, and Lots of marriages. Marriages, lots and, of adoptions. And they'd bring over families and they'd and get they, people yeah. work and this kind of thing as well. That's right. After, uh, after 1975 um, and again in 1978, the OPS, ex-OPS officers in the U.S. are involved intensely in refugee relief work, especially for their counterparts, the people that they worked with in um, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And they welcomed lots of people or, or they – if they didn't welcome them um, into their own houses, they were involved in relief work through their churches, or they were just involved emotionally in um, in the process of sort of sympathizing for the refugees, circulating their stories. And what I what I understand from them in the end is that these OPS officers, who are kind of the bosom of the U.S. state, end up feeling more like, more akin to these refugees mm. than to their fellow citizens mm -hmm. in the you US. Know, you know, you do, you make an interesting point too that there's this sense of, um, you know, it's a nationalist sense, but it's kind of flipped on its head in, a, in some strange way that yeah. it's, um, it's like, my nation uh -huh. is comparable to these other people over here. They're like me and the nation I That's understand right. uh, that is America. So it's not like it's not a, like an anti-racist position, right? Like no, it's, it's not. It's but it's a way it's in which you accept. it's transracial. It's cross-racial without being anti-racist. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think it just it shows us how. Um, how pure the idea of an imagined community is. It's mm. portable. It can be resized uh, to any context. That's and right. it reminds us that U.S. nationalism does not necessarily include all of the people within our territory. Mm. And, you know, this is something that we see very clearly in the way police treat some people as second-class right. citizens. And You're right. So, you know, one of the things that you say through, I mean, this is a part throughout, but it's I think it's not something that, that is a surprise to anyone. You can't appeal to the state when you need help against the state, right. right? So this is one of the issues with police in general, right? That's right. Well, so yeah. uh, that's uh, unfortunately our show. It's our, oh. our, our time is up, believe it or not, Nicole Siegel. Uh, time flies when you're yeah. on interchange. <laughs> uh, we're going to close with a theme from Barney Miller, mostly because it's one of my favorites, and I watched the show when I was a kid. So uh, it's composed by Jack Elliott and Alan Ferguson. Barney Miller is a sitcom set in New York City um, on the East, 
excuse me, East 6th Street in Greenwich Village. It began in 1975, aired for eight seasons. Barney Miller presents some really interesting character backstories, particularly those of Sergeant Wojohowicz and Sergeant Harris. Wojo is the naive, gung-ho, but good-hearted Catholic Polish-American who gradually transforms from a macho former Marine into a decidedly humanitarian character while performing his duties as detective. And Harris is an ambitious, intellectual, African-American criminologist who has a taste for the finer things. He served in the Coast Guard prior to becoming a police officer. He's a self-professed Republican, but also a former war pre- protester and ardent supporter of the police unions of police union strikes. Seriously. <laughs> There's nothing hard or violent about those guys. And are they really police? I don't know. It's a sitcom. What are we going to do? Thanks for being here, Nicole Siegel. Thank you so much, Doug Storm. Nicole Siegel's book is Violence Work, published by Duke University Press. It's an eye opener if perhaps you've always imagined the men and women in blue were benign agents of democracy. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is our executive producer and our studio engineer today. You can find more programs like this one on our website, W. UFHB.org slash interchange. You can also find us on PRX and iTunes. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Mm-hmm.